Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Young Mesh podcast. Um, I am Cameron Bride, uh, one of the mentors, um, and I'm joined by Michael Curtin, who is a clinical psychologist all the way from Australia. Uh, and today we'll be talking about uh, the subject of trauma, um, how to hopefully learn some techniques to cope with um, listening to other people with trauma, how you can be supportive in that way, um, and basically exploring the field that Michael works within. So I think the best way to start this off would be how um, would you describe your job? At the present time, my my work is, is mainly working with individual clients or groups of clients. Uh, having said that, I've uh, had a variety of occupations related to psychology over the years, uh, including uh, sports psychology, working with top athletes, both in Australia and New Zealand, and um, and even overseas uh, from there. And I've also um, had a company where we did a lot of training work uh, at one stage. I've had other, other particular work, but probably uh, in the last 20 years, one of the side issues I've had is, uh, side interests I've had is working with trauma. Uh, I got involved with working with the Australian military through their counselling service in mid uh, in the mid 90s, and whilst I was working part time there, I kept an interest in the trauma side of it, and I have on, been on various uh, teams for trauma management in in New South Wales, Australia, and I've been to a number of major major traumatic events with uh, train crashes and fire uh, fire hazards and and train accidents, etc. Uh, so I've uh, so I've worked in the trauma field for a long time, but the main the main thing I've had is always a strong interest in how you treat it, and that's really what has kept me going in that area. Is and I've done literally thousands of hours of work with experts in the trauma field. I've worked with them and I've listened to them, and I've worked uh, with individual clients. Uh, who have got uh, trauma issues? Trauma is a, a, a large, a large definition. There is a large definition for trauma. It ranges from sort of severe fear and anxiety to to sort of PTSD, which is the definition in the DSM-5 um, for for uh, really severe trauma. You're using Mark Hordman's research uh, and some pretty cutting edge techniques to try and uh, treat the trauma. If you could very briefly explain to us kind of how how the research is being used. The network theory came through probably about five years ago. And um, it was it was from that that I have um, uh, taken up his particular protocols. And I, I think I've expanded them a little bit, but mainly his protocols uh, for treatment of trauma using network theory. And of all the strategies for head treating trauma that I've, I've actually got hold of over the years, which include work with, with all the leading experts really, uh, and I've trained in it when I can, um, I find that this particular approach is, uh, is very, very effective for healing trauma, provided the client does the homework required. Uh, that's the only condition. And, and sometimes that is a problem because uh, people who are traumatized often have a bit of a struggle to apply themselves over an extended period of time to retrain the sort of impulses and stimuli responses that they need to in order to retrain the computer to come from the right network. But the, the theory is brilliant and the practices are brilliant. Obviously, whoever's listened to the podcast before will be uh, aware of some of the techniques that Mark Waldman um, uses, but obviously you've adapted them in quite a different way to reprogram some of these traumatic memories um, and not allow certain networks of the brain to access them in, in the same way, Like, which is contrasting with how we do it, where we're just practicing uh, reducing our fear response by using the salience network to basically reset ourselves. Uh, you're actually using it as a physical process to like basically rewrite a lot of these 
traumatic experiences. Um, and that's, that's pretty incredible. And is that uh, like enough detail about am I doing even enough justice? Well, I think you've got the edge of it there. You know, the, the, the composite of it there really are, to some, to, to some extent, Cameron, the, 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 the combination of Mark, uh, Mark's protocol involves network theory. Using networks to manage other networks in the brain is part of that. Uh, using mindfulness uh, theory and, and, uh, and language theory to, to work out the way to speak. Um, but yes, the, uh, the protocols, which I've modified to some extent, and I've, got, I've tested this out with clients, um, but but the basic protocol works brilliantly, and if clients will, in fact, people are traumatised, will in fact do the homework, and not only that, if they actually uh, take it on as a lifelong task, then you can reconsolidate memories in any way you like. Um, Joseph Ledeau is the basic theorist behind that, and you can access him on the internet if you wanted to, to look at where he comes from. But it's this idea that every time we recall a memory, um, even if we don't do anything with that memory, when, it's, when it goes back into the memory systems, it changes. So we can't avoid that. And so the whole idea of, of uh, if a memory surfaces repeatedly, then the idea is to deal with the memory in a way which desensitizes the person to that memory in such a way that they reconsolidate it in a way which is devoid of emotional impact so that in fact uh, the memory becomes uh, part of the library system but it's not something that is uh, an involuntary control factor for stimulus response. So people People no longer get troubled by their, their past traumatic memories. And I have got a lot of experience in the last five years to be able to say very convincingly that the system, uh, the Mark Waldman's protocols work extremely well for people who uh, actually work at it. And, and that work outside of sessions with you, it will be practicing all of the techniques. It will be thickening the dendrites between your default mode network and your salience network just so you're becoming more aware yes. of how to access it correct yes and and the strategies there are strategies which mark has devised himself to uh shift the to make sure that when you're actually doing the work you're in the, the salience network in the right network we see the salience network as the umbrella network it it, is, it enables the brain to shut down previous memories which get in the way of things when we're trying to consolidate memories appropriately. And so that, that salience network is an umbrella network and if we can learn to get into that network and operate our treatment, our self-healing from there and become self-aware of who we are from there, then when we reconsolidate and learn how to reconsolidate memories, we can just treat ourselves as these things surface. But it's a lifelong task because we do need to keep. It's a bit like uh, training my bicep. You know, I, I need in order to train the biceps, you've got to keep working them. You've got to keep uh, tissues working and the muscles tearing slightly to, to to keep that system operating effectively. And the the brain is much the same. We have to keep working at it uh, at things to to make to to make sure that we can access the salience network. And we can use that network appropriately in dealing with the reconsolidation of stuff. Talking before about kind of um, the involuntary response to memories, I think that leads quite nicely into maybe you could give us an idea of some anecdotal evidence from your clients of what the real world impacts of dealing with everyday trauma are. Well, the, the, the thing about trauma that I have found in Australia here particularly, and, and, and in fact in New Zealand, is it, and probably in the States as well, is that mental health authorities or mental health workers, by and large, don't check out too carefully a person's history to find trauma. And so it's a difficult task in a way because 
some people can experience fear let's call it fear for a moment or two some people can experience fear more trenchantly than other people so if you're a more sensitive introverted type of child then you're going to be processing fear more extensively and more more uh, intensively than you would someone who is a bit more extroverted so you can have with that introverted person something which would look fairly unfearful to the average person but to them it can be uh, an issue related to intense trauma which causes ongoing unconscious fears to be sitting in there behind the system all the time the, the issue that I find generally is that it's not very well picked up with uh, professionals and uh, I mean the person I work with in my own clinic he is he is very much has been very much into the argument that trauma is the basis for, for a huge amount of pathology in the community and basically he's been arguing for years in the courts that trauma causes a lot of criminal behavior in people and I would agree with that um, but it certainly causes a lot of dysfunctional behavior in people so assessment is really critical I mean understanding and learning how your fears affect you is very important and and you do that by having a good uh, conscious self-awareness uh, but if you're doing an interview with somebody it's something that's very important is to go back into their early life and check out the sorts of things that made them frightened and scared I had a, a client the other day anecdotally um, she has been uh, she's 18 and she's been um, diagnosed since she was 13 with bipolar disorder uh, quite serious she's on r really high levels of three different types of medication and has been so since she was around about 13 years old when she had a major reaction at school in relation to something which no one really seems to know about but she really had a bad um, uh, emotional reaction to something and from there on she's been diagnosed as having a, a borderline personality and also having a borderline disorder when she came to see me um, she came through a friend who of hers who I had also treated for trauma who had been seriously bullied at school and had uh, had been actually physically injured through the bullying and who had been um, struggling at school and had a very a variety of number of a variety of personal problems of self-identity and self-worth uh, and also uh, attention deficit issues so uh, that she had done extremely well with two or three sessions of this protocol trauma protocol and she recommended her to come and see me she had had a bad reaction at a party one night and uh, this this friend of hers was at the party with us so she talked her into coming to see me so we fitted her in uh, which is difficult because we're pretty busy but uh, we fitted her in and I spoke to her probably for about an hour and a half getting a good history of uh, her past and it turns out that um, when I asked her about her childhood she said up to the age of eight she was actually resident with her family in Aleppo now Aleppo is in Syria as you probably know and at the time uh, they were in a war fitting which they still are and they were being bombed regularly the the people if you've seen Aleppo I have actually seen pictures of Aleppo it was quite seriously devastated with bombing and uh, the people the people were living in their houses right through that and the family that she was in which included a number of sisters of hers and her father and mother they were they were bombarded they had every night they had to huddle into a corner in the middle in the in the in the in a um, like a cave underneath the house and then they finally had to had to leave Aleppo and went to another uh, to another city somewhere in Syria which was better and eventually they moved to Australia well you've got an eight-year-old living in constant fear for something like 12 months under severe bombardment I mean there was no there was no mercy in that bombardment it's hard to believe this but no one 
in all the time that she'd been to clinics or professionals, no one had ever asked her about trauma. Really? Yes. So she'd, I was the first person that ever questioned her all about that early childhood experience. And when she, uh, she had been asked, how was her childhood? And of course, she'd said, well, my childhood was happy. Uh, and those were the sentences. But, but of course, a child actually will say they're happy if they're happy in their family. Doesn't mean they're happy with the surrounding environment. And really, really when you're talking with children, you've got to keep that in mind because yeah, it's, it's a very sort important of, distinction. Yeah, for sure. Yes, it's a different world. So no one had ever asked her this. So, you know, that's probably an indictment on the fact that we live in a society which doesn't readily recognize trauma. So uh, anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, I sent her away with the homework, which she zealously has done. And she is now on the road to, I would think, probably in six months, she'll be off medication. She'll be um, functioning without intense fear. And she'll be, and, and of course, one of the problems she's always had is she has these panic attacks and has never really been able to work out where they come from. But of course, the panic attacks come from hidden memories that we have. And the memories are uh, always extensively overvalued because our imagination system, uh, when we're children, our imagination system and the fault network are the two that work, the networks that the fault system contains the imagination system. And so the impulse for imagination on top of the memory is big. So you get, you get all sorts of distortions with the memories. Yeah. Uh, the beauty of Waldman's treatment is that you take, you take the, you don't troll for things, you don't hunt for things, you just take what surfaces you get into the salience network, you use the intuition of that person to tell you what needs to be looked at, and then you deal with that in, with the protocol. Yeah, so you really need that foundation of the, uh, like the homework, as you say, in order to kind of get that to be able to work in the sessions. Yeah, so, the, person, so the, person, yeah the person has to be able to get into the salience network when they're in the session with you, along with the, with the therapist. So if you can't do that, you can't actually do this protocol. And the only way so you what, can do that. What are some examples of that uh, homework just before we, before we move well, on? Well, there's, there's four, uh, where I, it, I wouldn't say this is all marks, but, uh, and he may, he may even by now have a slightly different version, but my version which works is this. I have four uh, bits of homework which they have to do. Sometimes I'll spread that over four weeks. But the first is um, getting people to learn how to gently hand rub their, their hands and to gently hand rub the inside. Now that activity tends to soothe the brain. If you even do it yourself and close your eyes, you'll find that you feel calmer. So that's the first exercise to, to learn self-soothing. Self and it tends to shift the person's brain into the network after a while. Uh, it's been very effective with young children with ADD in schools. They, if they, if they just rub their hands under the desk, they learn to be able to manage their activity uh, as well. Because ADD itself is uh, is often fear-based. It's 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 related to anxiety. So you know, you, if you can if you can move the anxiety aside a bit, you can deal with some of the activities of it. Anyway, the next, the next thing that I give people to do is a gratitude journal. Now the gratitude, um, this is not specifically in Mark's work, but my, uh, I, did, I did quite a lot of research and analysis of how gratitude works in the networks. And uh, I, I found that the gratitude neurons, the neurons that are, that are activated when we express an to ourselves gratitude or gratefulness, uh, those neurons switch on, and they're very they're a very unique neuron. Uh, they they have a longer axon, which is the sort of arm that leads down to uh, sort of the root-like structures called dendrites. Now that arm is long for a reason. It means that for some reason or other, that goes in and out of the brain networks quite extensively. Uh, it's almost uh, double the size of a normal neuron. 
So I've just taken that as being anecdotally a reason that we have that there and I get people to do the gratefulness journal and each day to write out five things that they actually feel grateful for. And I have found that just doing that particular exercise with the idea of training yourself into the network we want is very useful. And they don't have to be big things either, do they? No, cup of tea, anything that you enjoy, anything that's salient for you, you can, uh, and if you keep if you keep doing that, I think the switching on of the neurons in that area up of the brain actually it facilitates your entry into the salience network. So it's all of these, these four things are designed to assist that process, to learn to, to, to operate more in your life from the salience network rather than, than the default system. We don't, it, we don't want to exclude the default system. That's the creative part of our brain. That, that's the imagination circuitry. It's got a lot of good things going for it. But the issue it has is what's readily available in that default system are the, false, are the memories that we have from our early childhood and our adolescent periods. And those early memories can often be contaminated and mis, misshapen. So we need to if if they become a problem, we need to deal with them. Yeah. Um, compared so, to the lifestyle our ancestors lived, we're spending a lot more time in our default mode network than we than we usually would. Is that correct? Well, completely, because uh, because we well, if if you watch the media, uh, you or not all of the media, but unless you're selective about watching the media, you will be indoctrinated with anxiety or fear. So. Uh, if you're in if you're in that system which in fact imbibes fear or anxiety then in fact you'll be in the default system and if you live in that default system your humanity will disappear because the salience network is the network which involves uh, self-compassion compassion for others empathy um, love um, feeling of positive identity, etc. So you'll notice that the psychopaths uh, who are evident in the world, uh, on the world public scene, if they, if or when they exist, those sorts of people don't have those attributes. They live more in this default system, which is the basically the emotionless uh, and and all the or the more negative emotional states. Um, but if you want to live a, a positive, happy human life, then we need to train ourselves to operate more from the salience network, at least some of the time. Uh, the other thing which is critical to the whole process of learning to get in the salience network is the process of stretching and yawning. So yawning is a process which shifts us automatically into that network. And so we get clients to to learn how to yawn on demand and, and, and probably need to keep doing that all their lives. The mindful yawn as well. So you try and, while you're, Bring it up, you try and see where it starts, and uh, you can. Um, it's not critical. Um, it is. It, it it's it's good to it's good to include the mindfulness aspect to it, and you can include other things with it. But just yawning itself and the stretch uh, will, in fact, shift you into that network. I've seen the I've seen the MRI uh, functional MRI scanning of that, and it's very clear that when we yawn, our our salience network becomes very operative. Yeah. Well, so you can feel it definitely when you yawn. Uh, it's yes, kind of when you get the quietness and like the serenity you get after you have a really big yawn. If you sit there and just kind of sit with it for a second, the the, yes. the amount of mental chatter decreases like so much. Yes, completely. And if you do three yawns, which is seems to be where we're at at the moment, to try and do three yawns, then in fact, um, at the end point of those three yawns you really are in a very good position to reconsolidate memories which are annoying you. Because if you can watch the memory at that point without judgment, just simply using what you were saying, the mindfulness approach, which is mindfulness at its essence is simply observing what's happening in our brain or mind uh, without judgment, without saying that's good or bad, just thinking, well, that's interesting perhaps, but there it goes, just like the river flowing past. Um, so. The, so, so, the, so the stretch and yawn, so the micro stretch and yawn is critical. And the last thing I always get people to do is something on values. So thinking about 
what values are important for them and concentrating on those uh, on a, a regular basis. And, and what would that look like? Just um, kind of after doing your yawns, just sitting with yourself and seeing what your intuition brings to you? Or? Yeah, well, you can do that. You see, there's, uh, there's the, the, what I do, what I do, and, and again, this is, this seems to work. You asked me anecdotally, I'm telling you what works for me anecdotally. Um, so if someone has a, a thought which is, uh, you know, getting on their mind and they can't get rid of it, say they want to, uh, say they've had an argument with someone and they can't get rid of that thought, then uh, what I suggest is you do is three stretch and yawns and then you just raise that thought and then watch it. Just, just observe it become self-aware in a relaxed, mindful way, just self-observe it without any judgment on it. Don't think, well, I wish I hadn't done that. Just simply watch it and think that's interesting. Uh, it's neither good nor bad. And you, and you apply that to good things as well. Try to, try to, if there's good things happening which you can't stop thinking about, do the same to them. And you just simply watch it until it dissipates. What will happen is you'll find it will gradually change and your mind-wandering process will begin. And we, uh, we very much encourage you to get into mind wandering because that's the healing part of the brain, the brain sorting itself out. So don't inhibit that. We, we want you to mind wander after you've done that. Ability to and, uh, stretch and yawn and then kind of mindfully observe that memory that's annoying you, that, that will be the end goal uh, for self-management of kind of a, a, a stressful memory. Uh, correct. Yes. So that's what the homework is working towards. Yes, that's right. Well, we do a protocol around that, which is more uh, structured for for really bad memories, which are traumatic and and more on the PTSD line. We we've got a protocol for that, which involves a kind of a what we would call probably in the cognitive behaviour therapy line more of a, a a desensitizing process using using the salience network to do it. Though that's the difference between this process and CBT. The, the, the thing is that um, the thing is that when we reconsolidate a memory, if we reconsolidate it differently and more positively, it will go back into our computer in that form. It doesn't go back as it came out. And that's why we don't encourage at all talking about trauma too much. You know, like if you talk about trauma in the designated way that I'm suggesting, or you deal with it yourself in that way, that's perfectly okay or brilliant, but not to talk about it with people because every time you talk about something negative, you're actually reconsolidating the memory in a more powerful negative way. And that's the last thing you want. So a lot of counseling has lost ground because of that process, because a lot of counselling involves ad nauseum talking about issues. Now, I would take myself back 25 years ago when I was first working in a trauma team, and we were using a method called the Mitchell method, which involved getting people to, I think it was Mitchell, I might have put that word wrong, but uh, we, we involved people who were traumatised and getting to talk about their trauma. Well, you know, I used to come away from those briefings and I would say to the supervisors in the, in the company that I was working with, I, was, I would say, this is nuts. It seems to make people worse. I knew, I instinctively knew that and I made a big case for that. I went to the spring, I went to court with that with a psychiatrist. Uh, the two of us went to court based on that. He had same same thought on it. It was very much against the current thinking at the time, but basically from the recent neuroscience in the last few years it's it's quite obvious that we should not really talk about trauma too much that's that's so interesting because it is against all preconceived notions of therapy it's all talking therapy and it's all being able to express yourself in a certain way and um kind of that that's quite a big shift away from i'd say traditional methods and and kind of what I've always grown up to be thinking of what therapy is. There's kind of, there was only one way in my mind or one main way, and that would be talking therapy for sure. So that's, that's pretty groundbreaking. It was definitely well, take time to adopt, I'm sure. I think so. The, the thing is that talking therapy is all right. If you're, if you're talking about uh, things which aren't related to fear, 
uh, it's probably not going to do much good for the fear, but it's okay, and it develops uh, relationships which is useful uh, for people's identity and self-worth and that sort of thing. But but even even in that area itself, it's far better to actually use these strategies of getting into the, teaching people to learn to recognise what it feels like as you've done to feel what it feels like to be in that yeah. salience network as opposed to other networks and to oper to learn to operate from there from a value point of view so that even if you have self identity problems you can either you can either accept the principle that you'll uh, you'll cultivate values and you'll build your own self identity around that or you might have a spiritual system which says if i if i get out of my false self i'll be in the real self which is related to some sort of divine activity whichever way you go doesn't seem to matter to me too much provided you, uh, you you look at the values, yeah. and so that value system can be built up from within, uh, either either from within because you've got it already and you don't know you have it, or you're building it up from the external uh, approbation of the meaning of those things, I, and you're putting I, it into your memory. Yeah, I found I found as well that it has helped me be a lot more introspective than I usually am. Just kind of getting myself out of the way, getting the mental chatter out of the way when I am able to switch into my silence network. And yeah. basically looking at it from a more objective view, trying to be an objective observer on your actions, on your life. And kind of on top of that, looking at values, which I'm obviously still working on. Um, and I think I will for a while, but just in terms of seeing why I'm responding to certain things in certain ways, when I'm able to catch myself and kind of use the techniques to change my state of mind it's really amazing the way that i'm suddenly able to actually come up with things that i never would usually uh, and i haven't throughout my entire life i've been very kind of uh, introspection has been one of my worst skills growing up i'm, I'm pretty sure and especially emotional introspection so this well, you hit you hit on a very very important point about all of this because the the whole uh, the whole elevation of consciousness is about self-awareness. If we don't have self-awareness, we won't move forward as human beings. We will never really move from that default system. We will remain materialistically thinking, and we won't ever delve into some sort of higher-order thought patterns or even activities or behavior within ourselves, and we won't see it in other people. If we don't have it ourselves, we we tend to project out what we have. So if we have compassion, we project it. If we have hate, we project it. So the, but the, the important point here, I think, is, and this is just my thought on this, from what you're saying and from what others have said, is that you, you can be self-aware now with the, with the idea that you can fix this. You see, I can understand people not wanting to be self-aware because if, if this girl, for instance, Alipo, start to become self-aware and think about the terrible thoughts she had when her mother and father thought they were going to die, then in fact, if she has those and she doesn't know how to actually process those effectively, then in fact, why would she become self-aware? It's too scary. So, but once she learns how to, when those thoughts to come up, how to actually deal with those in a way that you're speaking of so that it frees you of that, and maybe not straight away, but one or two sessions later, then in fact, why wouldn't you become more self-aware? You've got no reason not to. So I think that's what happened. I think people voluntarily, it's not so scary. We now have a way to deal with it. You know, psychology has been searching for ways to deal with it for a hundred years. And William James, you know, from the very beginning said things like, well, we have to find out within ourselves. And I think that's where we're getting to a bit, where we're saying, well, you know, you yourself are the therapist. We can show you one or two things, and there'll be more to come. We're only scratching the surface of this, uh, which, in fact, where you will be your own therapist, and you will have your own strategies, and we'll teach children how to do this. The, the children who learn mindfulness strategies, for instance, are infinitely more mature than children who aren't. We should be doing that in schools primarily in the younger years, but we don't do it at the moment. But it'll come, I think. And so talking about being your own therapist, I I wouldn't say that I use, so the techniques that we've been learning from 
Mark Gordon's research uh, obviously aren't being used quite in the same way that you use them. Um, but in, in theory, our, our homework is pretty much the same. Uh, it's practicing getting into that status network and, and getting used to the techniques. And I feel like um, some of the techniques for me, I've had to adapt a little bit to, to suit myself. Um, so, for example, for the five things to, that I'm grateful for, usually it should be just before bed. Um, and obviously that Cambridge study you mentioned uh, said that it uh, increased the depth of your REM sleep if you practice gratefulness just before bed. But sadly, I just can't, my memory for that kind of thing is too poor at the end of the day. So I try and do it throughout the day and I, I've adapted them a little bit because especially when I'm starting out, forming those habits has been really difficult. Um, and I think jumping all the way to where they should be from absolutely zero because I was I didn't practice any mindfulness whatsoever before this whole process started. Um, kind of being able to do them incrementally and, and adapt them over time has been really, really, useful for me do you think that's still a viable way of, of getting to the end oh, look I, I think everyone will have their own strategies for dealing with these things this is an umbrella this is a like the branches of a tree you add the leaves yeah. the um, the the system at the moment we're saying the system works to deal with trauma and fear and it also deals with other sorts of memories that we want to fix up now and, and I think what it does, it does this business you're talking about to some extent, which is it, it gives us an opportunity to know who we really are. I mean, the biggest, the biggest difficulty uh, humanity has, I think, in, in general, is to know who we really are, because our early childhood is filled with all sorts of memories, which by and large are false. They're not, I don't mean they're false in the sense that the event mightn't have happened, but our perceptions of those events are really skewed. We've got all the information about cognitive biases, you know, what are we looking around 200 or more now? But not only the cognitive biases, the fact that children live in the default system primarily, that's what the brain is operating initially in. The other, the other networks aren't evolved very well. And basically, um, you know, children put meaning on things from what they perceive. And the perceptions often are related to fear and anxiety about survival. So at the end of the day, our, our cluster of uh, knowledge about who we are as a person is, is built around a false identity. It's a false self. And the beauty of the, you know, the, if you want to take a more mystical line to this or more spiritual line to it, I mean, the mystical traditions of the various religions have talked about this false self for years, two, 3,000 years. We are getting some strategies, which I think uh, effectively do the trick. And Waldman's work, they clearly showed when they were working with Tibetan nuns and monks and nuns that, uh, you know, 14 minutes of stretch and yawn and, and gentle hand rubbing was equivalent to eight hours of meditation. So we're basically in a position where we can, we can actually take a shorter time. And what I say to people is do, do a minute or two every hour. Put a mindfulness app on your phone with a little bell ring, do a mindfulness yawn and stretch every hour. And if you do that, you're gradually training your computer to operate in a different spe uh, spectrum of, of uh, energy. And that, and that will make a huge difference. I, have, I, have, I can tell you now, I can totally assert this conclusively that I've had the most wayward clients, but who they, who they have taken up the practices, uh, have, their whole lives have changed. Uh, you know, I had a lady the other day, I seen her on and off for about three years. She had a lot of trauma in her life. I've probably seen her about eight times. But she's had a succession of really violent relationships with men. So she, the first partner she had about 10 years ago, broke her, broke her jawbone and broke her cheekbone and he ended up in jail for 10 years and then next partner she had the same thing and and the, the third partner she had the same thing now when she came to me she wanted to know what was happening and my argument was well you know if for some reason or other you you are hooked into some of this stuff 
the excitement or whatever there is about it, and it seems to define you as a person, whatever way we want to look at it. But this is the way through. So we taught, I taught her the strategies at that point in time, about three years ago. She went off and started practicing them. And then gradually what happened over a period of time in the next three years, her relationship with herself gradually started to change. And I spoke to her about three months ago and she said, you know, she said, I've got a new partner. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Is he violent or has he beaten you up yet? We were joking about it. And she said, well, she said, it's amazing. She said, he's the most gentle, loving person I've ever known. And she said, I would have once said he was very boring and I wasn't interested in that sort of person. But she said, I find myself thinking what a great life it is with him. Now, that whole that whole shift in her consciousness mm -hmm. is about self-compassion. It's about her ability to let go of her, her early life anxieties and fears and become more who she is as a person, which is self-compassionate, recognizing compassion, being empathic, etc. And so what, is, what happens to her environment? Her environment begins to change and her selection of her, her mates and her people she associates with accordingly shifts. And, and that's again the, the thing that I've noticed. Uh, Mark Waldman will, will say a similar thing. We've got no science backing that up, but basically it seems to happen. It's like what you were saying before about projecting. So as in, if you are hateful, you'll project hatefulness onto the people yes. around you. It will be what you end Yes. Yes. Um, and I feel like obviously if you if you have a certain, if you're unhealthy in a certain way in a relationship, you will attract the the counterpart. That suits basically the the issues you have uh, in like an in, interpersonal relationship. So if you're you have a saver complex, for example, you'll often be attracted to people who have a victim complex and, yeah. and like vice versa. Um, yeah. So obviously that shift changes you from what you're attracted to, which is so interesting. Um, wow. That's a really, I really good. It, I think it changes us because in the salience network, if we work on the values, then we actually begin changing uh, the view of who we are, who we we recognize who we are as a person. So that can either be a real self. Now the old, the old mystical tradition of, the, of, of all the religious systems that I know of, they all say Gurdjieff and, and all, the, all the mystical people, even the 20th century, they would say like Talada Shadan or whoever you, whoever you read, they will say, well, this real self is, is a direct link to some sort of spiritual consciousness which pervades the planet. And so the, the real you is knowledgeable from that point of view. The behavioral sort of people who are more of my ilk would say, well, you know, like if you keep concentrating on, be, on, on values like honesty and loyalty and love and compassion, if you con concentrate on those when you're in that salience network, well, you're going to be reinforcing and you're being, you're actually programming your, your memory systems with some with some uh, information which gives that an opportunity to give a very different picture of who you are as a person. So you can take either way you like uh, to do it. Uh, people will argue one way or the other, but it, it probably doesn't matter a lot. It might be easier if you do the spiritual thing, I don't, I'm not sure, but it doesn't matter. It's there. And the key is the self-awareness. I absolutely believe the thing you've mentioned earlier, which I think is a very important point that's happening to you or happened, is that you've been able to begin to become self-aware and watch yourself. Because there are, there are um, experts in the world who have said in the past that the best way to become healthy is to become a self-observer of your own behavior. Yeah. And that and always so seems... You can be self-critical of your behavior as well as in when you yeah. see something that's wrong. You can, but it's always seemed to me from my perspective as a person trying to deal with these various issues through my life, I've always found, uh, created a slight sense of hopelessness because I would have to go out and deal with it by running or by playing sport or going out and uh, going into the bush and hunting something. Now, those, those ways work in a, in a funny sort of way. But if I had known back then that if I do three stretch and yawns and then I hold that thought in my mind of, thinking, well, uh, you know, a voice of shame from my early life or whatever it is, uh, hold it and watch it without judgment. 
and that will actually change the perception of that in my unconscious to the point where it won't bother me anymore. Well, you know, it would have been a different world in the sense of being able to catch it quicker. And I think that's the beauty of now, the present situation right now. We can live in the present. We can we can be self-aware more powerfully because we've got some strategies to actually fix things. Yeah. And also in a society where we don't have any time, it feels like. All day you wake up, there's the first stressful stimuli with your alarm. There's You go straight yeah. on to either being late for work or school. or You keep yeah. going and there's so many stressful stimuli. Just having... Yeah. Like you said, instead of eight hours of being mindful and meditating in order to get the same effects, for three minutes an hour or whatever it is, you do your stretching you want. Throughout the day, you do your hand rubbing. It's like so much more accessible and kind of as you build the habit, it will just be second nature, especially in such well, a busy environment. And the funny thing is that happens, uh, and this has happened to a lot of my clients. When I say a lot of what am I looking at? Probably 100, perhaps, since I started this stuff. Like that have practiced it and succeeded in the sort of outcomes. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that's exciting is that we, we get caught up in this insane uh, sort of product, production of we have a society, and it, it's promoted, I think, by the media to, in a sense, we, we live in a half state of chronic anxiety all the time. And I think, I think children do, and I think teenagers do. I certainly believe in Australia, teenagers are in a real mess, mainly from the COVID lockdown, but they're in a mess in terms of fear. So what, what happens once we start living from this point of view every so often through the day, touching base with our salience network, and maybe even who we are as a real person, that actually begins us to get to the point where we think, I'm not going to buy into this anymore because I've had a lot of clients who've said, well, I've left my job. And I'll say, what are you doing? Oh, I'm doing this. It's only part time, but that's all I need. I don't need thousands of dollars. I just need this. <laughs> and so it's it. what seems to happen as well is that people either get more efficient at their job and they don't have to work quite as hard or they make some decisions about cutting back. And, and when they do, quite often the business people are more than happy with that, you know, like it's not as if they're trapped in it, it's just more the system pulls them into it rather than the, the individual people in the business. Because that's quite often what I hear. I hear, I'll say, well, what does the boss think about that? And they say, well, they're more than happy with that. I'm doing my work, they're quite happy. Work four days a week from home, I'm happy to do that. So all of these things alter when we begin changing who we are. Yeah, yeah. and also becoming that objective observer, you can see what is muddying the waters. Right, you can mm. you can look very like clearly at what is not making you happy at all, um, mm. and it's so much easier from that perspective when you're not when for example when like still to this day but spending so much time in the default mode you end up feeding off all of these negative stimuli. There's a new yeah. news story that yeah. comes out that yeah. that is yeah. going to whip you up into more anxiety, but for some reason yeah. you're addicted to it. Because it's stimulating, you see. I mean, we, we get into the, we get into the, we get so imbued with the fear response that we get stimulated and think that's the only place where we get stimulation. But the and the problem we have as humans is the pathway out of that is a bit of a drag. So most people won't do it because one, it takes time, and two, it takes effort. You know, it's a, it's it's very. I always think it's very akin to training our body. You know, if you if you've been flaccid all your life and suddenly go to the gym, it'll take you nine months before you start getting really feeling good about exercising. And it's a similar thing with our, certainly the tendency in our school systems in the West anyway, uh, is to is to program children to believe that, you know, the acquisition of information is a critical variable, when in fact really what's important is the child actually living through the through themselves into a space where they can enjoy all their emotions like care and play and and, uh, and and joy, etc., rather than just thinking, well, I have to do this in order to be successful. So I think we we plant the wrong thing in, and then what you're saying exactly happens. We get into the thing where we think that the only route is stimulation. So then we have to have increased porn. We have to have increased uh, enterprise games or social games where we kill hundreds of people. We're doing things which are crazy uh, consciously. Uh, in order just to feed that early stuff, which we can yeah. actually deal with. 
you know. I think as you're going through, because you don't know any other way, like your parents have been the exact same. They've always been in the mode network. They've been anxious all their lives. They have trauma from their childhoods. It's so easy to look around and see completely nothing wrong whatsoever. Yeah. Because yeah. everyone, not, well, yeah. everyone is an overstatement. It's hyperbole, but it's so easy to look around and have your head in the sand because the sand is everywhere. So like it's, being it's, able to suddenly change your perspective is, has been pretty incredible for me. Well, a little bit because I'm like, what have I been doing this whole time? But <laughs> well, look, it's fantastic you've done it because at the end of the day, you will spread it to more people. Yeah, you know, the more you do it, and and I think people are looking for a bit of that now. I mean, yeah. there are the naysayers. There's no doubt about that. There's the Ooh, naysayers yeah. in every respect, and I think the the problem we have in our world is is that the media are naysayers, so that that system feeds that yeah. negative. Yeah. But but I think that uh, I think that I feel very confident, really, that the positive uh, consciousness that we can achieve uh, within ourselves, we stop projecting that stuff out. We actually become an agent of change. Yes. You know, we yeah. without knowing it, we are actually influencing people around us. I think you become like a beacon of of healthy energy, and people yeah. who lack that entirely will always gravitate towards you because it's what they need within their lives yes. so as in yeah an agent for change is 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 the perfect term for it because it's just because even if you're not what i found already is that i'm not that far through the program process at all well, you'll um, never I'm, get it. i mean i'm worse than you like at things i mean i have uh, i have two days a week where the group where we actually every hour we deliberately stop and do three four stretch and yawns and think of some higher higher um, motive we have and and the other day I went right through the day and didn't do one thing you know and I look back and I think my god I failed completely <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's not as if you get any better when you get older but the beauty yeah. of the present the present thing of awareness at the moment is that you can be self-aware and you can actually do something about that I can be self-aware now I said to a couple of the other people, I, I failed completely on Wednesday. I didn't do any of the stuff, but I'm not giving myself a hard time about it because 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, I would have really remonstrated with myself and gone, given myself a hard time about the fact that I'd missed oh, yeah. out on doing some mindfulness stuff, which is the very opposite of what I'm trying to do now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so, all about perspective, uh, isn't it? Yes. So it, it's, it, I don't think anyone really achieves full completeness in this yeah, in the time yeah, when you, but having said all that, uh, it's certainly the best path I've come across. That was the original question uh, for, for healing this whole process that we go through so that we can live from a, a point of view of ourselves, which is really authentic and, and, and in fact is positive. It's lovely to talk to you and I'm so excited to think that you achieved this from within yourself, because that's the ultimate game. You know, once you become, once uh, you you don't need to do anything else. You just become that new uh, person, or the or who you really are. Really, yeah, that's what happened. You start yeah, knowing who you really are. Then, and you fact, only really uh, you only really realize it when you look back as well. So, as in, like in the moment, it's like training at the gym. You won't yeah. see until you look at a picture of yourself from six months that's ago. That's right. Yeah, you right. really won't, you won't recognize yourself. That's right. And one of the things that tends to happen is that your environment tends to change. I mean, you start losing friends who you used to have, and then you get new friends who are more like this. And these processes go on and you become, yeah. you get to the point where you're more compassionate about that. You know, I'll, we've had a great time together. And if I don't see you again, it'll be a great life. I never used to think that at all. Now I do, you know, it's uh, it changes the, the sort of way that we reflect on who we are in relation to the environment, which is why I think, you know, a lot of these clients I have who are quite often in very abject circumstances, their, their positions change dramatically. You know, it's quite amazing. Well, on top of that, I feel like my sense of community within the collective has been a massive driving force for basically anything I'm doing. Because obviously it started off with me doing it once a week on Wednesday in our sessions. Um, yes. And that was all I had. But then I had obviously a session with Lizanne, uh, one of our young masters. And 
it gave me a few techniques at work. Whenever I did, whenever I cashed in a check, I'd, I'd yawn, right? Well, and it's just one of those things that I'd, I couldn't do it. Yeah, I couldn't, I can't do it like as a timer on my phone. It's just too, it's too, it interrupts me too much. If I'm mid thought, it'll end up annoying me. So I try to link it to things I'm doing throughout the day. And yeah. obviously I'll miss, I'll miss full days. I have a stressful shift and I will do it once. When I need it the most, I'll do it absolutely none of the time. But, but you, you, you have to keep thinking to yourself, it's not, it's not something which immediately, it can immediately yeah. relieve pressure, but it's yeah. really a long-term. I always yeah. tell people you've got nine months before you'll notice the difference. Yeah. If you're younger like yourself, it might be shorter, but for older people, it's not. Um, and the other thing I was going to say, this idea of linking it to things is a great thing to do. One client, the first client I ever taught this to was someone who'd been in jail for 25 years for murder. And basically, he was very anxious about getting out of jail. We work with some of those people uh, for, uh, for, for, for nothing to help them get back to into society. And, um, and anyway, he, he, he got really into stretching and yawning. And he got a truck driving job very quickly, which was unusual because it was hard. It's hard to get those jobs here, but he got one. And and then what he did was every traffic, every red traffic light, he stretches and yawns. That's amazing. And his whole life is uh, his whole life has been very different. Basically, he's got a really good, had a very sensitive relationship, and he's doing really well. Really incredible. Well, he he thinks he's doing really well. You know. That's the important yeah. thing. Yeah, hundred percent. As in, if you can feel it within yourself, there's there's not much yeah. that can really slow you down, to be honest. Mm, um, and I think, um, and also he doesn't do all of the techniques, does he? He's found no. Just... Oh, that yeah, that particular one does two of them. He doesn't do the gratitude. There was another guy who I needed gratitude, oh, yeah. Yeah. and that's why I got onto the gratitude in a bigger way because he did it. That's all he did, and yet two years later he was in a different position. Yeah, so amazing. I think that I think that anything that helps us shift into the salience network yeah. is useful. You know, like we've got records of people walking out on the beach every day. That'll do it for an hour, or walking in the bush. And I remember the story of um, a, uh, I think he was a Victoria Cross winner from Australia, or a, certainly he got a high medal. Uh, he came back from the First World War. Well, he would have been totally traumatised. My grandfather certainly went through a mix. He, he came out of the war okay, but he, the things he talked about weren't very pleasant. But the, 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 uh, this particular fellow came back to Australia, and instead of, instead of going back with his family, he took off into the desert with a group of Aboriginals and just went with them for six months. And when he came back to his family... He was perfectly healed. He wrote a book about it, and and I'm at the time I read the book, I thought, well, you know, that's interesting. But now I know why, because at the, in that desert, in that desert environment, he would have been in the salience network, which would yeah. have been healing him. Yeah, yeah. So every time a traumatic memory came up, he'd automatically be prepared he, to yeah, deal the, with it. The environment, looking at the stars and looking at the you know the grandiose of the of the cosmos when you're out in the australian desert it's it's um awe-inspiring was my experience of it yeah. uh he would he would look probably have looked up at the stars at night because they never had houses they just used to lie around on the bush so yeah. he would just look out and and see that and he would be healed yeah. so our, so our trauma to be honest is a massive product of our environment the western world we live in the... uh, as, as much as anything society, yeah, yeah. That's incredible. Well, at least, at least now there is the research that's been put into trying to overcome a lot of the problems that we've created for ourselves. And uh, I think a lot of a lot of the problems with insomniacy will be healed by the by the techniques when they're widely adopted. So, well, I, I'm, um, I'm I'm a huge advocate of Mark Almond and Andy Newberg stuff, yeah. um, and uh, I've never I've never raved about anyone in my life like I have about Mark. It would probably embarrass him if he knew, but, um, <laughs> you know, like he just simply has devised a system through his own intellect and intuition, yeah. which in fact is nothing short of miraculous if you use it, you know, and yeah. uh, it's just fantastic. And, you know, like I can't, I can't thank uh, him enough really for what, for what I've got out of it.
plus uh, being able to share it with other people. Yeah, well, as in, I'm I'm obviously reaping the rewards at the moment, and um, mm. I'm on that journey to being able to share it in a larger way with people and kind of be that be that agent of change. Um, amazing! Thank you so much, Michael. Okay, a pleasure. We'll see you. Bye.